Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. And that brings us to Isaiah 24 today. We're in a message series on Isaiah And it's been um, eye-opening, to say the least, because the Lord has a lot of really interesting things to say about the world that we're living in. And the world that we're living in today, it bears a striking resemblance to the world 2,700 years ago. God's people are in a world that hate them, but are also offering alliances, promising safety and security and peace and comfort, but all you have to do is turn your back on your values and your king. We'll protect you, but you've gotta worship our king and stop worshiping your king. The promise hasn't changed because while the borders of the nations have changed and some of the names of the nations have changed, the kingdom of darkness who is pulling the strings behind those nations have not changed and their strategies are the same. What they want most of all is for you to turn your back on God. If you If you believe he doesn't exist, that's fine. If you believe he does exist and you play some kind of game by going to church and participating in the religious activities, but the other six days of the week you satisfy your flesh and you build the kingdom of self, that is also fine. It doesn't matter how you turn your back on your God as long as you do. The strategy hasn't changed. And that's what brings us to Isaiah 24. We are on the end, the tail end, of the oracles against the nations that Isaiah spoke from Isaiah 13 through Isaiah 23. And his main focus through the oracles of the nations is this idea that the nations are under judgment. But not just the nations, the ideologies behind these nations are under judgment. And because these nations and their ways of doing things are under judgment, don't align yourself with them. That has been the last 10 chapters. Don't align yourself with this specific ideology because God is going to judge this. God is bringing judgment on this and this and this. And when we come to Isaiah 24, suddenly the prophet shifts from looking at God judging these individual nations and these individual ideologies and it's almost like the prophet lifts his eyes and there's a shadow of something coming on the horizon and the prophet is overwhelmed because what was happening here at this specific period in time is now being overshadowed by something even greater. There is something coming. And this something that's coming is going to make God judging the nations at this period of time look like child's play. This is gonna look like an appetizer before the meal. This is gonna look like like a kid's production at an elementary school compared to Broadway production for what is coming. And so he lifts his eyes and he sees the shadow of something really horrific coming to the earth. 
and he doesn't know when it is. A lot, through the last 10 chapters, there's been time periods and specific events that are taking place where it's been very easy for us to pinpoint, okay, Isaiah's talking about this specific event. We did this last week when we're talking about the, the Babylon sending a, a, an, an ambassador come down and they have a meal. Okay, we, there's a, we can pinpoint that specific moment in time, but none of the things we're gonna cover today are, are rooted in a specific period of time which helps us understand that the reason why that is is because it hasn't happened yet. What we're talking about today is something that is going to take place not in one little nation, not in one little corner of the earth. It is gonna take place over the entire earth. Every human being who is alive will be affected by what is coming upon the earth. That's how wide scale this is. And it's not rooted in any time period, but we are certain because the Bible tells us that it will happen. Its impact will be felt everywhere and it's going to happen. Now this event that I'm talking about, we've read about it before. When we did our Matthew Bible study series from January up until uh, the 4th of July of this year, We studied the event that Isaiah is seeing when we covered the chapters of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. This event that we're gonna talk about today is the judgment of the earth, referred to often as the tribulation of the earth. We're gonna cover the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and what happens after that. And yes, Isaiah talked about this 2,700 years ago and it still hasn't happened yet. See, the people of faith had a vision for what God was going to do because God told them. And according to what they were told by the Lord, they chose to live their lives in a very specific way. Because if this is true, if this is going to happen, then it means I have to make some different decisions about the way that I live my life right now. If the reality of the word is true, that he is coming back, then I can't slip into this routine where the most important thing in my life is satisfying whatever desires I have at any given moment. That's, that's what the world does. But if we are aware and we really believe that he is coming back and it could be at any moment, then we have to live differently than we see our neighbors living and even differently than we see some of our brothers and sisters in Christ living. We have to start living prepared. We have to start living in a way where we are preparing ourselves and preparing our children and preparing our loved ones and preparing those around us that are non-believers. If you really believe that this is true, If you don't believe that this is true, then you can live any way that you want. But if you believe that this is a thing that he said he's going to do, and his track record's pretty good, everything that he has said he's going to do, he has done. I don't know why this wouldn't be, why this wouldn't take place also, if that's true, then we need to listen to the prophet's words today and allow them to wake us up because preparation for eternity starts right now. Because what we're about to read, I cannot, this is the warning label on today's message. What we're going to read today will happen. It doesn't matter if you, if you believe there is no God. This is still gonna happen. 
It doesn't matter what your theology about specific things about the future, it, it, none of, whatever you think doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what he has said about himself through the words of the prophet and you have to make a decision about that for your life. That is the weight of this. Now, I'm doing this because I'm trying to build tension because what we're gonna read today is equally terrifying and beautiful. And you will see it in the prophet's reaction. There are moments where it's like, come on, praise Jesus. This is good stuff. We need it now. Let's go. Come, Lord Jesus, now. And there are moments where it's, it's horrifying because the truth is that there are people that you love right now who don't want anything to do with this. Some of them are blood relatives. Some of them are family. Some of them are parents. Some of them are children. And it is horrifying and brings us to our knees in weeping and prayer because the only person who can change that is him. So he is telling us that there is something coming to the earth and we're asking him, Lord, do what you can only do to bring in your people so that we're not on the other side of what's coming. Let's go to Isaiah 24 and start in verse one. Isaiah 24 verse one says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth. He will make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with the master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. And the earth is gonna mourn and wither. The world languishes and withers, and even the highest people of the earth languish. What is coming to the earth? Judgment. The prophet is telling us that the Lord will sift and purge the entire earth that no one will be able to hide and no one will be able to hide the things that they thought no one knew about. Everything will get flipped like Jesus walking into the temple, flipping the tables of the money changers. Everything will get sifted. The entire earth will be affected. Not a single person on earth will be unaffected by what the Lord is going to do when he releases his judgment on the earth. It's gonna cover the sellers and the lenders and the buyers and the borrowers and the creditors and the debtors. It will affect all classes, all races, all nations. Every person on the earth will experience what the Lord is doing on the earth. Even the earth itself will be affected. Now, if this is true, what can we learn from this? 
we can learn what we said before. I mentioned it a moment ago. You can either believe that what he's saying is true or you can reject it and say, this is, this is nonsense. But it doesn't matter because it's still happening. Look, it doesn't matter what you think about him. This is still happening. And you can live your life in a way that says it doesn't matter or I don't care or I'll decide tomorrow. It's not stopping this train. Nothing is stopping. This is coming to the earth. Why is this coming to the earth? Go to verse five. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the laws, they have violated the statutes, and they have broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Because they have transgressed the laws and violated the statutes and broken the everlasting covenant, a curse devours the earth. This language is phrased in a way to help us understand that there is a component of God that says, because you have done this, I will execute judgment in the same way that a judge executes judgment when a case is brought before him. But the Hebrew language that's arranged here shows us that the other component to this is that when mankind chooses to break God's law, there is a natural reaction whether you like it or not, okay? If I take um, uh, a paper clip and I unfold it and I jab it into a light socket, am am I getting lit up because the electricity doesn't like me? Am I getting lit up because the electricity is mad at me and, and, and giving me ju- No, <laughs> no. It is a simple reaction to the fact that I was an idiot and put a paper clip into a light socket. It is a natural reaction. That's the language we have here. Because you have done this, the only, w- breaking God's law is like shoving a fork into a light socket. There is only one natural reaction. You will release plagues upon the earth. God, why are there so many bad things happening across the earth? Why would a good God let so many bad things happen? Look, God had nothing to do with this. This is on us. We wanted this. We brought this on ourselves. We made the decision to reject him and the only natural response is letting loose cancer across the earth. This one's on us. Every selfish desire, every motivation that says I want me and I don't care how it affects somebody else, I want me, that's the motivation behind the darkness that we see spreading across the earth. Now, we're told biblically that there is a kingdom of darkness that we can't see who's pulling the strings behind the scenes and is preying on our flesh and pushing that every chance they get. But Isaiah is pretty clear. The curse that devours the earth has come because we have made a decision to grant, transgress the laws, violate the statutes, and break the everlasting covenant. Now, when you're reading this, 
My prayer is that your mind jumps over to Romans 1, 18, 32, where Paul starts laying out the case <clears throat> of how all mankind has transgressed God's laws. The law of God has been clearly perceived since the creation of the world, and the world decided to give ourselves over to lust, idol worship, dishonorable passions, men and women gave up their natural affections and turned to homosexuality. The earth is filled with envy and greed and malice and murder and strife and gossip and faithfulness, faithlessness. Mankind knows they're guilty because of the guilt on the inside of them. We chose this. We knew it was wrong. We decided to practice sin anyway and elevate others who practiced sin as well. And so we look across the earth and it's like, well, that person seems like a pretty good person. I don't understand why God would judge this person. But all you're doing is making a judgment based off of the information that you see. Is it possible that since there are things that no one in the world knows about you, there are things that no one in the world but God knows about this person who seems like a perfect goody two-shoes but from a different perspective is also guilty of transgressing his law. Is it possible? If it's possible, then we have to consider what he's presenting to us. That everybody on the entire earth has broken his laws. This is why God is purging the earth. Now, seven is, is interesting because what he does is he, the prophet introduces this parable of sorts where he starts contrasting two kinds of cities. So what he's doing in seven as we move forward is he's saying, okay, the Lord's gonna do this thing over the whole earth and to help you understand why he's doing this, since you have, since people living this time, they have a hard time kind of grasping the earth. People in our time still have a hard time grasping the earth. You don't have to throw a rock very far before you hit somebody who thinks the earth is flat. We're still struggling with this. Sorry if you think that the earth is flat but it's not. <clears throat> so what he's doing here is he's saying, all right, since you have a hard time wrapping your head around this concept that the Lord will do something over the entire earth, because the earth is a big place. That's a, that's a lot of work for the Lord to do. I'm going to wrap up everything in the Lord, everything about him, and I'm going to personify it, not personify it, but I'm going to demonstrate it in a city. I'm going I'm to give you a parable of a city, and inside this city, everything in the city is the same stuff that's taking place of the world. So what he's saying is, in the same way the world's gonna, Lord's going to deal with the world, I want you to think about what he's doing in the world like he's dealing with with the city, now that your mind is kind of, okay, I can understand city, world's a big place, but I do understand this, because I live in a city, and, and I get it, so let's go to verse seven. What's happening within this city? Well, verse seven says, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, and the noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down and every house is shut up so that no one can enter. And there's an outcry in the streets for a lack of wine. Like that's the biggest problem. Where's my craft beer? All joy has grown dark but they want to know where their wine is. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. 
For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. That last line gives us another little parable. If you have a hard time understanding what, what the world is like in the concept of a city, it's Imagine the world kind of like an olive tree when it's time to get the olives off the tree. How do you get the olives off of the tree? You shake the tree and the olives fall. What the Lord's gonna do in the earth is gonna be like an olive tree that has been completely shaken. When he's done, there will not be anything left on the tree. When it's time to pick grapes out of the field, when you're walking down and you pick, before, you look, man, there's grapes everywhere. I see big old, big grapes. They're everywhere. I can see them from here. You look at it, it's like, it just looks like leaves to me. The whole thing's been plucked. That's what the Lord's going to do on the earth. Now, let's go back to this illustration of the city because he's going to contrast it in verse 14 in a minute. But Isaiah is using this parable to help us understand the world as a city. And what he's saying is this city, which is the world, is filled with excess and wine. They spend their days singing and drinking their cares away. They're self-medicating to forget their pain and ignore God's commands. Does this sound like any, anything? Sounds like today. Anywhere you look, what does God do with a city like this? Well, he removes their strong drink, he removes their singing, and he removes their joy. What a mean God. Why, how dare you remove our singing and our alcohol and our joy? Why would you do that? Why would you come in and take from the world the things that make us most happy? Because the things that make us most happy are making us drunk. We are drunk on our false joy. We are drunk on our singing and our TikToks. We are drunk on the medication that we produce for ourselves so that we don't have to think about the real issues or the motivations behind the real issues, which is a condition of sin in the hearts of mankind. So we drink ourselves silly and we sing songs so that we don't have to address the real issues. And what the Lord says is what I'm gonna do over the whole earth is I'm gonna remove all of that. I'm gonna make the world a sad and lonely place. Lord, why would you do that? Because until the places, until the world, or the city, has its joy and its drink and its song removed, they can't be sober enough to make real decisions about the real pain around them. Lord, why would you remove the good things in this world? Because you're worshiping them like idols. You're getting drunk on the good things that I gave you. You've made the good things, God things, and now you're worshiping them. So I'm gonna remove them from the earth, and the world is gonna be a sad, and it's gonna be a lonely place. Well, what's the point of that? It's so that you can finally get to a place where you are sober and not drunk on the things of the world, and you can start making accurate assessments on the condition of your soul and what's happening when you leave this earth. I wanna ask you guys, do you remember some, this is funny, some of you guys don't remember this because you were born after this, but how many, some of you guys in here remember what the world was like after 9-11? It's weird to me that some of you were born after that, but we'll put that to the side, I'm an old man. Those of you that were alive and remember 9-11, do you remember the, the atmosphere in the world after that took place? Churches were full. People were talking about faith and God everywhere you looked. Why? 
Because tragedy has a way of forcing people to think about the fact that they will one day die. You don't think about dying when you're drunk. That's why people get in cars when they're drunk and drive down the interstate 90 miles an hour because they're not thinking about what might happen to them or people around them. They don't think about that stuff. But when you're sober and when you're confronted with the reality that this is not all there is, suddenly you have to make a decision about well, what, what is next? And this is what the Lord is doing. So if we know this and we can see this and we start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, then when we watch the news today, now we can start understanding how the Lord is moving through this pandemic. Mm. Wouldn't have chose that. Wouldn't have picked this way. Wouldn't have decided for the Lord to move through this. But you cannot avoid the reality that when you're confronted with the fact that people you love or yourself might not make it to the end of the week, suddenly you start making different decisions about what's important in your life. It's a fact. Suddenly you start making different decisions about who you talk to, about what's next, about where you spend your time and where you spend your money and what you, what you put before your eyes. When you are confronted with the reality that this isn't it, there is something else, then you have to start making decisions about what is next after that. Let's go to verse 14. So seven through 13, we've got one city who's filled with singing and drinking. And 14, we've got a contrasting city. This is a different city. Verse 14, it says, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west, therefore in the east, give glory to the Lord in the coastlands of the sea. Give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Isaiah is now speaking about a different city and in the same way that Jesus teaches these parables where he contrasts these two concepts to help us understand big ideas and simple forms, he's giving us these two cities and the Lord is doing this through Isaiah, he's not making this up. Isaiah sees this one city that is a representation of the world and they're full of singing but they're not singing for the right reasons and you've got this other city and this city is also filled with singing but there's no drunkenness, there's no drinking, there's no selfishness in this city. This city is filled with the singing of the praises of God. The first city is, is, is made to sober up so they can make accurate assessments about why they're singing in their future. And the second city is already sober because they see what's happening across the world. This city is filled with God's people. The city is praising him through the tribulation. They see what God is doing on the earth and rather than being overwhelmed because it's hitting them close to home, they're worshiping in the midst of the sifting that the Lord is doing on the earth. And Jesus is heard from every corner of the earth, but Isaiah is still weeping 
in verse 16. Why is Isaiah weeping in the midst of a city worshiping the Lord? Because God is clearly working, but there are still some folks who are rejecting him. As we move closer to the end of eternity, that, well, eternity, the end of this world, this age, the, when, this, when the curtains close on this age, as we move closer to that point in history, things in the world will progressively get worse and the song in the church will progressively get louder. Those are the two things that you can invest in because they're gonna happen. The earth will get worse and more drunk and more sorrowful and joy will be removed and the people of God will sing louder and louder and louder because we will have a vantage point that's different from the world. We will see his hand at work and we will, we will be shouting because we see what's next. We're, we're on the very, we're on the brink of his return. He's right, yes, praise Jesus. But in the middle of that praise, there is also this reality that he is, in fact, removing the joy from the world. And that is sorrowful because it means that there are some people who we love and we call brother and sister who aren't actually brother and sister. They just go to church with us, but their heart has not been surrendered to the king. There is no repentance or turning from sin. There is only trying to adopt God's language into their life of sin. There's no transforming work of the spirit. There's only a regular attendance and treating church like it's a fitness club. You go to get your calisthenics and your exercise and to flex those muscles, but there's no real transformation. There's no dependency on Jesus. There's only a shallow representation of it. There's only a pharisaical heart inside your, 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 uh, your chest. All you want is to be seen as holy and religious with no real transforming work on the inside of you. And Isaiah sees this and he weeps. He weeps. As you run through the end of 24, 2017 through 20, he starts talking about the way that the Lord is going to execute this punishment, not just on the earth, but the powers behind the scenes. Go to verse 21. Isaiah 24, 21 says, on that day, so we're still on the same day, this is the same period of time. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. We've now come to the end of this period. Matthew 24, 25 kind of gives us a time frame. It's probably gonna be about seven-ish years of history when you study the, this same event in Daniel and you compare it in Matthew. This period of tribulation that's coming on the earth, it's not gonna last forever. But when it comes to an end, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven. Who is the host of heaven in heaven? He's referring to fallen angels, demonic spirits, the ones who left their proper place in heaven and chose to rebel against God. The kingdom of darkness will be judged by the Lord and also the kings of the earth on the earth will be judged by the Lord. 
They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit and they will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. And then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before the elders. So all this tribulation is gonna come to an end. He's gonna punish the demonic powers. The wicked kings and rulers of the earth are gonna be punished. He's gonna judge the the wicked on the earth. Anyone who's rejected the Lord will receive punishment and he's gonna rule on earth as a earthly king. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about our king. What's coming in the future? Him. He's coming. He's coming for us. He's going to return to the earth and he's going to punish the kingdom of darkness. They're going to get what they deserve and he's going to punish the wicked uh, puppets that have been controlled by demonic forces who've been furthering evil across the earth and he's going to punish those on the earth who have said, I don't need that. I've got my own way of fixing my problems. I can get out of this mess without that. They will receive punishment too. And when he shows up, we're told that the sun and the moon will be ashamed. Let's do a quick cross-reference here. Isaiah 24, 23 says, the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed and the Lord of hosts reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and his glory will be for his elders. I didn't put this up there, just listen. Let's cross-reference this with Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. What are we talking about? We're talking about the same event. We're talking about the return of the king. And when he shows up, the glory of his brightness will outshine the sun and there will not be a need for a sun or a moon anymore. There's no need for external celestial bodies to provide us light because our king will be our light and he will shine as bright as the sun, brighter from Jerusalem and the whole world will know that he is the legitimate king and those who are left from the nations, they're going to start coming to him and saying, teach us your ways. That's why you don't trust this world. Because any of the world that is left will be bowing their knee to his, to his throne anyway. Why would you throw yourself in with a bunch of people who are going to be defeated? Serve the king. Isaiah is telling us what's coming and we should get excited. We should also weep because it is good and it is also horrifying. Now Isaiah 25, the first five verses, we start off with this song of the people of God rejoicing. So now Isaiah 25 takes place after the return of the king. Jesus has returned. What happens next? Go to verse six. Isaiah 25, verse six, it says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for a people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. That's, that's alcoholic wine. It's, it's not grape juice, it's the good stuff. 
of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And at that feast, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away every tears from all faces and the reproach, the shame of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. That Hebrew word waited means we have longed for, we have hoped in, we had looked to him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and let us rejoice in his salvation. This is the good stuff following the judgment of the heavens and the earth, it is time to party. That is what we will be doing with our resurrected bodies. First and foremost, eating. Let the church say amen. amen. We find this also in Revelation 19, 19, 19, 9. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb. We're gonna rejoice, we're gonna eat. The Lord's gonna walk around and wipe tears off of our faces because there will be no more need for crying or sin or shame. All of that will be gone. He's gonna wipe away uh, death. He's gonna wipe away shame and he's gonna do all of it by crushing the pride of this world. And that's what he says in verses 10 through 12. He compares the pride of Moab with the pride of this world. And he says, when the Lord comes back and he returns and he rules and reigns and demolishes the, the garbage of this earth, it will be like when he demolished the pride of the kingdom of Moab. Now go to Isaiah 26, verse one. 26, one starts this song. Following the celebration throughout the entire earth, you can hear the song in the new heaven and the new earth. This is wild, huh? Isaiah's seeing this, and we haven't seen it yet. This is coming. He says, in that day, this, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. So open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And the song continues all the way down to verse 21. But following the celebration, we hear this song. It's a song of gratitude for God saving his people. It's a song of refuge in Jesus. It's a song of thankfulness, but it's a song that also helps us understand the kind of qualities of the people who have been saved by God. When the Lord saves a person, what happens on the inside of their heart? What kind of qualities start taking place so that there is evidence that the Lord is actually at work inside of them? Well, we see it in the song. You find righteousness you find faith, you find a laser focus on Jesus, and you find trusting in God. Now let's reflect on that for a moment, because Isaiah is telling us that the people, God's people, 
who will be in this new heaven and earth all have these same similar qualities. Who are led into the gates? The righteous, those who keep the faith, those who in perfect peace, their mind is focused like lasers on Jesus and they trust in him. This implies that without these qualities, you're not getting in through the gates. That the evidence that the work of God has transformed, that the resurrection power, the fact that Jesus' work actually is working in you, the evidence of that is that these qualities are found. And then if you don't have these qualities, then his work is not at work in you. Is this found anywhere else in scripture? Because this seems harsh, because we're taught today that anybody can get in through the gates. All you have to do is be nice, be loving. All you have to do is, is follow these little religious things. Good. Did you go to church? Cool, then come on in. I'm sure we can find a spot for you. That's not what the Bible teaches. We see this illustration also in Matthew 22. We studied this back with Matthew. I think Lyle taught on this. Speaks of a, there's, there's a parable that speaks of a king who threw a feast for his son. And at this feast, the king is, is going around and notices that somebody at the feast is dressed in the wrong garments. They're not dressed for the feast. They don't belong there. And he goes up and he says, how did you get in dressed in the wrong clothes? And he kicks him out of the feast and Jesus says that he's sent out into the utter darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's sent out into the pit that Isaiah would talk about. So if you've got Jesus teaching on this, you've got Isaiah driving this point home that there are qualities that are evidence in the lives of people who say, I have surrendered to Jesus. If these things are not evident, you have to ask yourself, have I actually repented and turned to Jesus? Or am I playing some kind of false horrific game with the God of the universe where I'm putting his son's name on things that his son's name don't, does not belong on. That's how real this is because we're talking about eternity. We're talking about where you spend the rest of your life. After this life, we're talking about the life after this life and it lasts forever. There's only two places that you spend it. And where you spend it depends on what you decide to respond to this and the empty tomb. Are you tired of building this kingdom of self? Are you ready to repent and turn from it and start building God's kingdom and getting to work at his work and allowing the righteousness of Christ to be your righteousness, allowing your, your faith to be built so that you're trusting God, and allowing everything else in your life to fade away so that you are only laser focused in on Jesus and nothing else matters. What am I driving at? I'm driving at the same thing Isaiah and Jesus are saying, that participating in, the, participating in this celebration right here requires that you reflect these values then if these values are not present, that it may mean that you have not actually surrendered to Jesus. Participating in this celebration is only possible if you renounce your throne and allow Jesus to take his rightful seat as your Lord and Savior. There are no other ways. There is not a sneaky way. There is not some other thing that some other preacher can come behind the teachings of Paul and Peter 
or me and, and declare, oh yes, well Jesus is good, but what you really need to do is just, just love your neighbor. As long as you love people, as long as you're kind, that's enough. That's not enough. That is a byproduct of the fact that he has risen and at work in you. That alone is not enough. That is a response to the fact that there is work going on. Now, I said five through 21 is the rest of this song. I encourage you to read it on your own because it is beautiful. But I do want to call attention to verse 19. It says, they're singing and it says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You shall dwell in the dust. Awake and sing for joy for the dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. What is he talking about? He's talking about resurrection power. He's talking about Jesus returning to the earth and raising the dead. Yeah, the prophets knew this was gonna happen 2,700 years ago. The plan has always been the same. Jesus is not a backup plan. God is not in heaven looking at the condition of the world saying, God, man, things are a mess. Let's scrap it and try something else. What part of the Trinity wants to volunteer to go down and sacrifice these people? No. It is that Jesus has always been the only plan. He is not a backup plan. He is it. And in verse 27, Isaiah puts a little cherry on top. He drives his thumb in the eye of the enemy by stealing one of their uh, stories and putting the Lord's name on it. Go to Isaiah 27, verse 1 through 3. It says, in that day, with his hard and great and strong sword, he will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And in that day, a pleasant vineyard, so sing of it, because I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night. Now there was a very prominent Babylonian creation myth that was going around at the time this was written. People who did not surrender to the Lord Yahweh, when they reconciled, how did we all get here? They borrowed the creation myth from the Babylonians that said that this fault, this God, Marduk, destroyed this chaos monster in the ocean called the Leviathan. And when he conquered that, he earned the right to be the ruler over the world because he conquered the enemy for the people of the world. And what Isaiah is doing is he's stealing that story and he's reminding the entire world that this puny little God that you talk about that destroyed a serpent, that's fake. In fact, it was actually my God, and he didn't just conquer Leviathan and chaos, he conquered all of the chaos over the entire world. The real God is Yahweh, and he is the one who conquers all the dragons in all of the worlds. But he doesn't just conquer dragons, he's also a gardener. Which is the most beautiful thing about our Lord. Our king has got a big old nasty tattoo on his thigh and carries a sword around, but is not afraid to get down in the dirt of your heart and cultivate fruitfulness. That's the God that we serve. He is a warrior king with dirt under his fingernails. He's gonna conquer the nations. He's gonna judge evil 
and he's gonna save his people. That's the rest of that song down to 13. And these four chapters, they give us a clear detail of what is coming to the earth. It may be tomorrow, it may not be for 100 years from now, it may not be for 1,000 years from now, probably not gonna be that long, but it's, we don't know when it's gonna come, but we do know one thing, that it will come. And if we know that this is a thing that will happen, my question to you is, what is your response if the Bible is true? In what ways can we start taking inventory of our lives? Because if this is coming, you don't want to be standing when the Lord returns in a pile of mess of this world. You want to forsake that stuff. You want to be found with your hands lifted high in worship like that other city. You don't want to be found in the wrong city crying because there's not enough beer and all the joy is gone. So if this is true, how can we start taking more seriously the spreading of the good news of Jesus? Because if this is true, then the people of the world need to know that this is coming. And many will laugh at you and say that this isn't true, but it's not gonna stop it from coming. And if this is true, how can we look forward to this joy while also weeping? How do we live as a people who can't stop laughing and singing, but also crying and weeping? That sounds like a rough way to live, but we're told that if we live that way, a time will come when all those tears will be wiped away and the only thing left will be rejoicing. Look, as your pastor, I just wanna encourage you that this is going to happen and you should start changing your life according to it. But above all else, there is nothing in this world that is worth giving your heart to that will cost you your place in eternity. That's what's on the line. The prophet just spent four chapters telling us what's coming and for us to say, I don't believe it, that's a dangerous line to walk. For the people of God, we take what is given to us and we start making changes and it starts in the place of prayer. Lord, what do I do with what I heard today? And with that, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.